Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. This is Jamie Weinstein. My guest today is Ben Judah. Ben is the director of the Transform Europe Initiative and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Europe Center. He also is a journalist who has just returned from Saudi Arabia a couple weeks ago, where he wrote about the kingdom and how it is dealing with the regional conflict that's going on over there or the threat of regional conflict after the outbreak of the Israel-Gaza war. So we get into all those issues about what is going on in Saudi Arabia and the region and how they view Israel's fight against Hamas and Gaza. But we also discuss with Ben what is going on in Europe, where he is from and has written about in books like This is Europe and This is London, about what is the future of Jews in Europe with the outbreak of anti-Semitism we have seen in that region. So we get into all those issues and, and many more and what I think will be a very interesting podcast for the Dispatch followers. But without further ado, I give you Mr. Ben Judah. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Thank you for having me. I wanted to have you on uh, because I read that you were in Saudi Arabia and you wrote uh, a couple pieces from there. But you also cover uh, Europe. You're from Europe. Jews in Europe is is a subject that you're familiar with. So I think uh, you are a perfect guest kind of for the moment we are in. But let's start in Saudi Arabia and maybe discuss when you were there, why were you there, uh, whether the plan was to be there during uh, what has gone on in the region or that just happened to be, um, you know, a byproduct of the moment in time that you planned the trip and, and what occurred on October 7th? Well, it just so happened that I had been uh, previously invited to go to Saudi Arabia for a major investment conference known as FII, aka Davos in the Desert is how you'll find it referred to in the New York Times or the Washington Post. And you know, as I was kind of making plans and preparing to go, the kind of terrible uh, events of October the 7th and what's come afterwards really frame the trip in a whole um, in a whole new light. And in the piece you wrote, um, I believe, was it for the Times? I wrote several pieces. In fact, as you mentioned, I wrote one for the Times about how the geopolitics of the Middle East uh, kind of look like from Riyadh. And then I wrote a kind of longer essay for Unheard about Saudi Arabia and the attempts of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, also known as, or more universally known as MBS, uh, to transform his kingdom. And this is what you wrote in, in The Unheard, actually. This is, this is Saudi Arabia seven years after MBS castrated the morality piece. But make no mistake, this is still a country where you can be beheaded for a tweet. The paradox is his kingdom has never been more liberal or more dictatorial. Lay that out for us, what, what it was like in the Saudi Arabia of today. I think you've got to go a little bit further back to understand the Saudi Arabia of today, which is, you know, Saudi Arabia is kind of founded really for the third time as a kingdom really belonging to uh, a family in a way that we would be very familiar with in sort of Plantagenet, uh, England, or Capetian France, but the rest of the world has not been familiar with in these kind of phases of uh, modernity. This took place in the kind of 1920s under Ibn Saud, and Ibn Saud really was a you know kind of medieval warrior 
in a lot of ways, that found himself at the intersection of British imperial interests, US oil interests, and towards the end of his life, kind of meeting uh, Roosevelt uh, in the, the Red Sea to form a kind of agreement about uh, geopolitics and energy, which became one of the cornerstones of the world order. And it's a little bit like imagining that a figure from England's you know, medieval and deeply devout past, you know, maybe we could say somebody like William the Conqueror had found himself in contact with the Seven Sisters oil companies and been granted through kind of no action of his, of his own, the greatest single family fortune the world has ever seen. Now, kind of fast forward, you know, we see the current king of Saudi Arabia is the seventh, is the 25th son of Ibn Saud, and MBS is his seventh son. There's a saying in the Middle East, which is that uh, from the kind of works of Ibn Khaldun, that no dynasty survives its third generation. And MBS and the kind of faction around him are deeply worried that their family, and it really is their family, have wasted the greatest fortune ever known to mankind. Because Saudi Arabia, as oil begins its final decades as the spice that the world economy runs on is, you know, is, is going gonna, is gonna to run out as the kind of magic ingredient that's made Saudi Arabia, by some measures, the most cash-rich society that's ever ex- existed. So they're extremely worried about the future of Saudi Arabia. And MBS sits at the end of really a long-running fight within the House of Saud over whether the country should be oriented in a kind of Islamist, internationalist direction, or whether it should be oriented in a nationalist direction. And MBS is very fond of saying to his advisors, we are now entering a phase of nationalism. In American imagination, when people think of Saudi Arabia, they think of, uh, you know, veils and kind of classic Arabic tribal uh, kind of garb and dress. But you write in your piece that this is not a a country where you saw many veils, uh, or at least as many as would be in popular imagination in the United States. And I guess that speaks to this tension between MBS and the the clerics. What is that tension like? Uh, you know, has he been able to neuter kind of the opposition to perhaps his more liberal instincts? Um, how is that playing out? So, you and I could have been having this conversation in, say, 2013, 2014. And I could have made a very persuasive case that people were freer in Iran than they were in Saudi Arabia when it came to what they could wear, what they could do, how they could be educated, how women could live, you know, what life was like you know, on the street, in the home for uh, you know, your average kind of person, certainly your average uh, sort of woman in Saudi Arabia. I'm not saying it's a completely convincing, but you could have made a very strong argument. And now, really, that situation's been um, quite dramatically reversed, especially when it comes to the conditions of uh, women, because MBS has, as part of his revolution, tried to break with that Wahhabist tradition and that kind of clerical power that goes back really to the founding of the House of Saud's kind of power in the kind of 19th century as an alliance between. Wahhabist clerics and the kind of fighting arm of the dynasty. And a lot of the key things he's done are, for example, 
castrate that morality police, which used to really kind of terrorize uh, inhabitants, allow people to kind of play music in public places, allow cinemas uh, to open, relax the, um, you know, and, and sort of end the kind of tyrannical kind of dress codes uh, uh, for women, allow women to, to drive. So we have this sort of this contradiction or this paradox in Saudi Arabia, which is one of the most dramatic liberalizations for how your average person lives and certainly how the conditions of women um, are experienced has been pushed forward by one of the most autocratic leaders that Saudi Arabia has seen in recent memory, who is, of course, infamous for what happened uh, to the Washington Post contributor Jamal Hashoggi at the uh, Saudi consulate in uh, Istanbul, where Saudi agents, according to CIA, on the orders of uh, M- MBS, uh, dismembered him with a bone saw. That lays a, a good background, uh, I think, to you know where Saudi is playing in what we see as a uh, you know a regional conflict, at least not ne- maybe not a hot conflict regionally, but certainly one uh, where there's discussion of that. Um, were you able to get a sense uh, of where? let's say that the Saudi leadership is on what is going on between Israel and Gaza versus maybe the, the man on the street to the extent you were able to, to talk to them? I'm not going to be able to talk about the, the kind of man on the street or the people outside kind of Riyadh in any kind of meaningful sense about their geopolitics because Saudi Arabia remains a very oppressive society where people are very frightened of talking about sensitive topics like sort of Gaza to kind of you know, visiting, uh, vi- visiting foreigners. I can talk a bit about it, sure. but I would just kind of, you know, it's very important as a journalist to know when people might not be telling you the true extent of their feelings. But I can talk about um, the view from the royal court and the view from the kind of political advisors and that kind of Saudi elite about geopolitics. That goes back to kind of what happened with the rise of MBS. So the rise of MBS is not like Prince William, who will wake up one day and he will be you know, God willing, the king of uh, the United Kingdom and its uh, and the crown realms uh, beyond uh, beyond the sea. Saudi kind of monarchs emerge from within the uh, House of Saud through the Chamber of Allegiance. They have to win it politically. So MBS coming to power is more like kind of Cromwell coming to power than it is like you know King Charles who simply had to simply had to wait. Now, MBS kind of found himself, as I said, the seventh son of the 25th, the, the 25th son, um, as, a, as a kind of, you know, teenager when he was, like many Saudi princes, sunk in kind of lethargy and fast food addiction and video game, the long video game afternoons. And he was told by one of his cousins that your dad's poor, actually. Your dad, despite being the governor of Riyadh, has not amassed a meaningful fortune of his own and is, in fact, deeply indebted debted to businessmen. And this revelation terrified the young MBS because he realized that if he and his father, or if he couldn't move his father closer to the central center of power as the king, the family would sort of spin away in that constellation towards, if not poverty, but certainly very far away from, from, power, from power. And certainly they might, depending on how these successions uh, uh, um, went, not have any influence, any power, any security. Uh, security at all. So MBS, you know, went on a long-running attempt politically to take power within the family, to take power within Riyadh. And he, founds, he finds himself sort of in the same situation 
towards the Saudi state as he found towards his father. His father hadn't built up a fortune of his own. Instead, he was very happy to live off uh, essentially a kind of giant welfare check from the Saudi treasury. And the Saudi state continues to live off what is essentially a check from Saudi uh, Aramco and from the oil industry. So MBS you know, envisions himself as a leader who's going to rule Saudi Arabia for the rest of his, his life. He's kind of same age. You know, he's only a few years older than me. I'm 35. You know, but he's planning a long life uh, for, for himself. And he knows that if he plots out a reign that he wants to measure in multiple decades, only around a third or half of that will be in the oil era. We're only looking at a few more decades where Saudi Arabia can rely on that giant, well, uh, that giant welfare check before it finds itself in a new situation where it cannot pay for the state as it currently uh, exists and the social system that currently exists. And he knows that that could be extremely dangerous for the uh, House of Saud. So really, his geopolitics stem from that realization. And that's why he sees himself as wanting a less ideological Middle East, where he normalizes with Iran and would also like to normalize with Israel because he believes that he needs to turn Riyadh and Saudi Arabia into a new version of Dubai and the United Arab Emirates if he ultimately and the family ultimately is going to retain power. So what do you think he is doing behind the scenes right now, uh, seeing what occurred on October 7th, how that you know, may affect what his plans were to, to come to terms of some sort of agreement with Israel? You know, what, 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 where, where does he sit right now? So it's really important to kind of remember how Arab leaders look at their deals with Israel. And they don't look at them ultimately as deals with Israel. They look at them as deals with the United States. And that goes back to the diplomacy that kind of Henry Kissinger did in 1973 and set the stage for the diplomacy after which, which is the deal between Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin was really a deal between Egypt and the United States to leave the Soviet orbit and to receive a large permanent subsidy, essentially, for its, um, for, for, its, for its military and to find itself in a situation where it was protected by the benevolence of the American order and not finding itself in, you know, what the Egyptians had the foresight to see was a kind of was ultimately a, um, only a short-term plan to be in any kind of Soviet uh, orbit. And then all subsequent deals of Israel have operated more or less on the same measure. You know, Jordan made peace with Israel um, in, I believe, 1994, because the Hashemite kingdom, the last of Lawrence of Arabia's projects in the Middle East, had um, backed Saddam Hussein, and it viewed a treaty of Israel as a way to repair relations with the United States. And the recent Abraham Accords were either, in the case of uh, the, UA, the UAE, an attempt to become the most influential uh, Gulf state in uh, Washington and a way to secure better, better arms, or in the case of Morocco, a deal over Western Sahara, where the United States would back Morocco's territorial, uh, territorial claims there. So MBS is looking at a potential deal with Israel, which he has specified he is still interested in doing despite the current war and the current conflict as a way to do a deal with the United States. So what does he want? He wants some kind of relation, some kind of security pact from the uh, US, maybe not NATO Article 5, where we pledge 
kind of come to your defense. Star Treaty, maybe, you know, Article three and a half or three and three, quarter, three and three quarters, something close to that. And a kind of civilian monitored uh, nuclear program to transform Saudi Arabia's energy and implicitly to provide a counterweight to the fact that Iran is now a, a nuclear uh, threshold, threshold state. So those are the things that he wants from the United States. And one of the reasons that he also would like to, to do this um, is about this kind of ideological battle. As I said earlier, he views himself as a nationalist who is bringing his country out of a phase of Islamism into a phase of nationalism. He takes a lot of inspiration from NBZ, who is the crown prince of uh, Dubai, and he views him really as the kind of pioneer of what a kind of contemporary Arab leader can, uh, can look like. And in order to win these, this sort of conflict against Islamism, which he believes has impoverished Saudi, Saudi Arabia culturally and politically and left it you know, sort of isolated and backward relative to where it should be, it's very important to diminish those conflicts which could be used by them, such as either the conflict with Iran or the conflict with uh, all the conflict with um, you know all the conflict with Israel and Hamas, and of course its kind of backers ultimately in Iran understand this perfectly well, which is one of the reasons why the attack on October the seventh took place. It was also an attack on this plan. We'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turn into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code dispatch at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Could you get a sense whether MBS and those around him want to see Israel succeed in defeating Hamas, destroying Hamas, dismantling Hamas? Or do they see uh, this conflict uh, flaring up as uh, a annoyance, uh, you know, this massacre as an annoyance to what they were trying to achieve before October 7th? Well, as I said, like their mission is about Saudi Arabia. It's about how to save the House of Saud from modernizing Saudi Arabia's um, economy. How do they go from Riyadh to the new uh, the new Dubai. And so they're not concerned about ultimately about Israel's security. They're concerned about, you know, how do events, how do events that go on in the Middle East play into that? They, they look at it like this. Situation A, Hamas rules Gaza, backed ultimately by Iran, is not a situation they like. They don't like it. Situation B, where Gaza could be run by some kind of UN trusteeship with 
international Arab forces, um, and they would sort of pay for it, and the PA might return. They would much, they would much rather it was in that situation. But they don't know how to go from A to B without exploding the whole uh, Middle East. And there are two things that they're very worried about. They are worried about uh, Jordan and uh, Egypt. They look at Jordan and they see this sort of half British king that's got more properties in um, in more properties in Knightsbridge and in West London than many of the great British property developers as potentially at risk, given that his population is majority Palestinian, of some kind of overthrow, things get really, really, really bad, really, really bad. And that would be chalked up as an Iranian win. That could, you could see, hypothetically, you could even see Hamas take over large parts of, uh, 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 of, of, of Jordan. And that's the kind of nightmare scenario for them. They don't want to see Jordan collapse. That's not on the cards for now, but that's the kind of thing they're worried about. And they don't want to see Egypt fall back into the hands of the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, of course, an offshoot in a kind of spiritual sense, not a direct political sense of the kind of um, Muslim Brotherhood of uh, Egypt. That was what General Sisi, you know, so brutally crushed and overthrew, you know, restoring his sort of military uh, secularism to power. And the way that General Sisi is viewed from Saudi Arabia is not a very good leader. You know, very bad at balancing the books, very bad economically, just hasn't done anything meaningful. Economy's in a very, very bad state. There were protests that were already beginning before this conflict. So they were very worried when I was there about what could happen to Egypt. So that's why they had been publicly calling for a publicly calling for a ceasefire and hoping the conflict could be could could be wrapped up, could could be wrapped up sooner. But if they could get to a situation where Hamas had disappeared in the Middle East and had not been completely exploded, they would be fine with that. As we're discussing, NBS uh, has this interesting family dynamic. Um, is there a chance that when his father dies, that he could be uh, removed from the de facto leader and not become king? Uh, or or has he so cracked down on dissent within, uh, in, you know, royal dissent within Saudi Arabia, that he, he, it's almost automatic that he becomes uh, the king of Saudi Arabia. Well, firstly, when you arrive in Saudi Arabia, one of the things you immediately start seeing are his portrait hanging in many locations, like over lobbies next to that of his father. So it's, he, when you go to the kind of museums that he's, uh, he's open and there are the lists of the names of the, the kings, it doesn't end with his current father, the king, it ends with him as the crown prince of uh, Saudi Arabia. His image is everywhere. His face is everywhere. If you go to, you know, as part of his kind of modernization drive, you know, they've launched what's called the Riyadh Seasons, turning this city where, in a lot of ways, fun was banned. Public fun was banned. Like, music was banned. It was frowned upon to have um, into a whole series of international events and sporting events and music events and and sort of boxing events. You were there, in fact. I'm a big boxing fan, and, and there was a major... I mean, it looked like you were at the, at the fight between uh, Tyson Fury, the, the British heavyweight champion, yes. versus Francis Nagano, who was, until he left the UFC, the, the, the heavyweight champion uh, in mixed martial arts. Yeah, well, I'll tell you that I think that Francis was... Uh, I hate to kind of ever let down a kind of a, a Brit, but I do actually think that Francis was robbed <laughs> of, that, uh, of that, that match. 
But uh, well, yeah, I'll just tell you, you know, as that match began, there were, you know, videos of MBS kind of crowd was encouraged to thank him for thank him for it. So, you know, he's not just kind of ruling from the palace in a kind of precarious way. He's stamped his face and authority on on Saudi Arabia, and he's treated as if he is already uh, already the king. You know, the House of Saud is a kind of mysterious, mysterious family, and you know the upsets have happened um, happened before. So never say never, but it certainly looks like we're going to be sort of dealing with this guy for decades and decades to come. And this comes back to the question of like... But, but Ben, it's maybe a brief second to explain sure. maybe how these things happen. First of all, he would be the first generation post the, the sons of Ibn Saud to, to become king if he became king. And what, if I call correctly, you probably can explain better. The way this happens is when his father dies, there are different family factions that it's almost like the Pope meeting. Uh, you know, they come together and, and they, they determine the next king. And I guess the question is, has he alienated enough figures within that conclave, however it happens, that, that you know, they turn on him once his father leaves? Well, it's always possible. But the read that you'll get from Western diplomats in uh, Riyadh is that he has cemented his power over that kind of family conclave the way that Oliver Cromwell had over par- over Parliament at the end of the British, sort of the English Civil War, in the sense that there might notionally be a vote, but it's assumed he will be the sort of uh, the next ruler of uh, Saudi Arabia. So that's not, that's not what people are thinking. That's not how people are, are assessing the way things are going, for, go, going forward. Never say never, Middle East is a strange place, you know, but um, I don't think that that is, is, likely, is likely. But you think beyond wanting to get a deal with Israel, which is still his objective, he has made overtures to Iran. Is the sense that, you know, at one point there was this belief that Saudi Arabia was hoping Israel would strike Iranian nuclear uh, plants and, and kind of uh, decommission them. Is his view now that he just wants to make peace deals with even forces within Iran that, that might want to overthrow him? Well, he's in a place now where he, do- he believes that Iran is a nuclear threshold state, and it's only a matter of kind of assembling the, the bomb, not getting yourself technologically in a place to, to do it. And the best thing in order for him to achieve his vision, Vision 2030, as he, put, as he puts it, of transforming the Saudi economy, is to try and normalize relations in the Middle East and to try and turn the Middle East in, away from a kind of conflict zone and more to a marketplace. In many ways, he's, kind of a, he's in a kind of neoliberal phase, but like you go to his kind of major businesses, it's all about investment, it's all about kind of opening kind of borders, it's all about kind of trade, it's all about trade. But that doesn't mean he's not a kind of temperamental, uh, temperamental kind of a ruler. And Saudi Arabia is kind of Hardly kind of quoted at the beginning remains a country where you can be beheaded for a critical critical tweet. Like you shouldn't have any illusions about that. Um, illusions about that either. But his grand strategy towards Iran is that the best thing that he can do is sign a deal with the United States, i.e., through normalization with Israel, to acquire a defense accord with the U.S. comparable to NATO, but not exactly the same, and 
to uh, get a kind of civilian nuclear program, which would allow him eventually to be a nuclear threshold state too. The root parity with Iran goes through Jerusalem in his calculation. Before we move on from MBS, uh, as you mentioned, this could be a leader that is with us for decades to come. Uh, you write in your piece, for the optimist, he is a Saudi Ataturk or Peter the Great, the latest Arabian incarnation of a westernizing dictator. For the pessimist, they see, a, uh, they see the smile of Saddam Hussein pointing to the dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi and his strange facial tics. Which is he, do you think, Ben? What, what, is, your, what is your view of that? Um, well, I don't know is the, <laughs> is, the, uh, is the answer. And, you know, but, you know, you know I'm of Iraqi Jewish descent and Iraq's played a lot of roles in different sides of my family's uh, uh, history. And when, I, when you speak to, um, you know, people in my family who knew Iraq in the 1970s, they would tell you that... Iraq was making huge progress, especially on the question of uh, of women and complete equality, and that you could visit Baghdad, and it looked too different then from visiting Kuwait or visiting uh, Dubai or visiting kind of or visiting kind of Riyadh. Think about you, you know it was something it was Lord Acton said that you know supreme power, you know absolute power corrupts uh, absolutely, and I think just. It's very difficult to plot out somebody's mental state over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in that kind of, uh, uh, in that kind of, um, in that kind of position. One thing that we can begin to judge is, is MBS's economic plan working? Like if you go to this kind of giant um, uh, investment forum at FII, the Davos and the desert, you have all these stalls to these mega projects. And these are, you know, uh, like the, the Mukar a square skyscraper that's going to be in Riyadh the size, a cubic size of 20 Empire State buildings. It's like Neon, the linear city through the desert, 114, um, 114 kilometers, I believe, uh, I believe long. All of these many, many other mega projects as well. And the question is, is that an economy? Like, are these things even going to be built? Like, most of the people that I spoke to there didn't believe that these things were, were going to be built. And if you look at the kind of raw economic data of Vision 2030, it's succeeding in some ways on its own terms. It's failing on, on most of them. So we're now about halfway through this kind of economic program, this sort of this kind of initial um, kind of multi-annual plan. The share of the Saudi economy, which is state, i.e. state oil versus private, has not changed. The share of private investment that's coming in um, has not changed. Unemployment has not meaningfully changed. The one area that has been absolutely transformed is the participation of women in the workforce. Um, it was around kind of 30% before Vision 2030. They were hoping maybe to get it to kind of 40, 45% uh, after a few years. It's now over 65%. So really that transformation is the part uh, that's work it's the part that's part that's working. So looking ahead. You know, it's important to start to ask ourselves: Can Saudi Arabia balance the book? Balance, uh, balance the books. Now, thing about decarbonisation is, it's a bit of a kind of infernal wheel for Saudi Arabia, in which, contrary to expectations, as the world decarbonises and we move, essentially, the core of modernity, we move it from a fuel-based economy to a metal-based economy. That's electric cars powered off lithium 
it's you know that's kind of windmills that's kind of um solar solar panels what that means for the is still a huge amount of oil that's going to be needed and used for decades to come but it's going to become much more expensive to get oil out of the ground in most countries in the world so places like ecuador quite a high break even price uh, to get your oil out of the ground you'll be incentivized by kind of global decarbonization standards and just by economic logic to kind of stop doing it. So it means that the amount of oil being extracted in Saudi Arabia shoots up. And therefore, Saudi Arabia earns more money in the initial phases of decarbonization before running out of of money. So are we, all it takes right now with with Saudi Arabia's books is Saudi Arabia didn't really have debt about 15, 20 years ago. And I mean, it just didn't have debt as a kind of, the, the country itself, unlike Britain or France, the United States, didn't have debt. Debt's beginning to shoot up. The budget doesn't balance about quite a high, um, a, a high price of oil. Before COVID, when the price of oil really went down to about $20 a barrel, that was a bit of trouble economically, not seriously, but a bit of, it wasn't this kind of festival that we're in, uh, we're in now. So it's quite conceivable that if, a couple of things happen, such as the end of the energy war between Russia and the West could happen, you know, or some kind of dramatic breakthrough in battery technology could happen. The FT is full of uh, stories every day telling us that there's been some kind of small advance on sodium batteries that could make life much more difficult for Saudi Arabia economically in the in the years to come. And we don't really know what MBS looks like as a leader without unlimited money. I want to uh, transition to Europe with the remaining time we have here. Uh, you've written extensively about Europe, um, about Jews in Europe. Um, once again, we have um, seen a conversation, uh, which I remember The Atlantic published maybe four or five years ago. Uh, is there a future for Jews in Europe? Uh, I feel like that conversation has once again uh, come to the fore. Uh, from The New York Times, uh, they reported that there's been a 240% rise in anti-Semitic incidents since October 7th uh, from the prior year before in Germany. Uh, in the three weeks after the Hamas attack in Britain, there were more anti-Semitic incidents than in any three-week period since 1984. Roger Cohn in the Times writes, perhaps not since the Holocaust, which saw the annihilation of about two-thirds of Europe's Jewish community, have the Jews of Europe lived in an atmosphere of fear so acute that it feels like a fundamental shift in terms of of their existence. And one way to transition it is I believe at the conference in Saudi Arabia was Jared Kushner. Uh, and I think he made a, a statement to the effect that he probably would feel safer in Saudi Arabia at the moment after October 7th than in some parts of Europe. What do you make of that? Is that over exaggerated? Well, I think, you know, in the, in the conference center, he might have felt very safe, but like, you know, in the conference center in London, he would have felt very safe. Uh, uh, he would have felt very safe as, uh, as well. But you know, I, I just want to kind of say very briefly, I'm, I've always been very bored by anti-Semitism. I don't want to think about it. I shouldn't have to think about it. It's such an ugly, intellectually barren thing. But I've got to think about it. You know, Jewish, being a Jew is kind of your force to think about anti-Semitism. And I was, you know, when I kind of remember talking to my grandmother, who was a Holocaust survivor, and I was asking her, you know, what was it like in Nazi Germany or in occupied France? She never really was interested in talking about what it meant to be Jewish then. She was always very interested in what it had done to society. She was talk about the mass marches, about humans having numbers, it's modernity itself perverted. And there's a way of looking at antisemitism, which is, you know, like when a, a body gets sick, 
you do a scan, the disease will show you which were the weak uh, organs. And antisemitism shows you what parts of modernity are, you know, shows you in a sense the nature of the nature of modernity. And if 20th century antisemitism was biologically racist in an age of classification, in an age in which the antisemites were proud of Western global dominance, the Jew was seen as some kind of infiltrator that had to be destroyed in order to save that um, that dominance. An age of mass parties, antisemitism took on the form of mass parties. In an age of like book length idea, you know, credentialed ideologues, anti-Semites were credentialed ideologues. And in an age of charismatic leaders, you know, the anti-Semites are charismatic leaders. So when I look at anti-Semitism today in Europe, but also in North America, I don't think it's really a, a European story anymore. I think it's a kind of Western, Western story. You know, look at what's been happening in, 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 in Montreal over the last few days. In, the, in Montreal in the last few days, we've seen a near riot at a university, a pro- professor yelling at a Jewish woman to kind of go back to Poland with an Arabic swear, uh, Arabic swear word. We've seen attempts to firebomb uh, synagogues, bullets have been fired at, um, at Jewish schools. And all this is taking place in Canada, a country where not a single part of the state, no political parties, no government official is is backing this kind of anti-Semitism. It shows modernity for what it is, which is it's, we actually live in these very weak states in a lot of ways, in societies that are internet buffeted, where hysterias and fandoms are coming out of the, coming out of the internet. We're living in societies that have not digested or really understood the consequences of the demographic transformation that has been the last few, de- the last few decades of you know, transformative uh, mass immigration. And it's a society that, you know, because it's so used to thinking about an idea, ideologies, having ideologues and publishing books and being credentialed, it doesn't want to kind of appreciate the fact that in an internet society, the fact that you've got large chunks of the further left or the further right, you know, sort of without leaders, but in a kind of online culture of kind of comments and posts and like ironic accounts with the kind of faces of bodybuilders or of kind of, you know, kind of smiling dogs spewing a kind of antisemitism doesn't mean it's not, it's not kind of, uh, it's not real. And I think that antisemitism is really kind of revealing society for kind of what it is. So I don't think that we are, I think in a way, the kind of golden age of, of Western Jews, you know, after the Holocaust is coming to an end, but I don't think we're going back to the kind of dark ages before i think we're going into something manic and, and gray and i think you know in the way that kind of anti-semitism in nazi germany didn't give you a portrait of the jew it gave you a portrait of the german what's happening now gives you a kind of portrait of a lot of what's going on going wrong with western societies or a lot of what's contested in western societies with that ben thank you for joining the dispatch podcast thank you my pleasure 